Welcome to the No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo, and I am the founder of No Film School. I'm also the writer-director of the Netflix film Amateur, which came out a year ago. And I haven't been on this podcast since then, but back then I did a podcast about the making of Amateur called The First Feature, which was a soup-to-nuts look at how I got my first feature made uh, from prep to production to release. So if you didn't hear that, it's on the No Film School podcast feed back in the vicinity of April 2018. Uh, you can also go to nofilmschool.com and search for the first feature. Or you can go to Netflix and watch Amateur. A lot has changed since I was last on the podcast. I moved from New York to Los Angeles, and I'm actually recording this in my closet because No Film School does not yet have a podcast booth in L.A., but I didn't want that to stop me from recording a podcast with writer, director, actor Justin Chan. I think there's a lot that can be learned from his career to date, and we go in-depth on a long one here. He and I sat down and had a conversation about the craft of directing, from rehearsals to talking to actors to shooting without permits to how to take advantage of your low budget. Justin's had two features play at Sundance in three years, and we cover how he did that. After his feature, Gook, played at Sundance in 2017, everyone told him not to make another DIY low-budget film. But he did it again anyway. And his next DIY film, Miss Purple, got into Sundance again. Here's how Justin made two of the lowest-budget narrative features to play at Sundance in the last few years. All right, so Justin, how's it going? Hey, what's up? So you are here and uh, potentially about to go off and make... Another movie. Yes, sir. But I guess we'll, we can talk about that in a second, but mm -hmm. uh, let's just get right into it. First of all, your film, Miss Purple, mm -hmm. is coming out. September 6th uh, at the Newark uh, in L.A. It's on Santa Monica. And then the following weekend, it'll be at two landmark theaters in New York. I think that's September 13th or 12th. And then uh, the following week, it'll expand to more theaters in L.A. and also expand to most major cities. Great. And then you're doing a, a platform digital at some date in the future? Or what? Yeah, it'll after the theatrical run, it'll probably do the whole SVOD, uh, some sort of streaming site, I'm sure. Um, and we'll, and you know, when that time comes, I'll let you know where, where it's going to be playing. Great, great. So we'll, we'll get back to all of that. I yeah. just wanted to state up front, as a filmmaker myself, sometimes it's like, yeah, you know, before the hour mark, I'd like, yeah, to, yeah. like to promote the thing that we're here to talk about. Uh, but so for the, those who don't know, um, or I guess people might recognize you from your career in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, maybe since we're doing a podcast and it's long form, we can just sort of start from the beginning. Um, as an actor... You know, how did you get into that? What drew you to the medium? Mm -hmm. um, so I went to USC, but not for film school. I was in the business school. <laughs> and after my freshman year, I did a, an internship in Silicon Valley, and, and I hated it. Uh, I just decided there's no way I can work in an office like this for the rest of my life and rot away in front of a desk. So I just started seeing what my other options were, and I was trying, trying stuff out, and I enrolled in a two-year... Meisner acting program I just fell in love with it and uh, I figured okay you know at the time it was the early 2000s and 
Um, there weren't many Asian American actors that were making a living. Like John Cho had just come out in American Pie as the MILF guy. Um, and I was like, okay, if I could just m feed myself, I'd be happy like doing this for the rest of my life. So um, that's, that's sort of uh, how the acting bug caught. And then I did everything. I catered food uh, to make ends meet at like, it sucked. Catering food sucks. Um, but uh, yeah, I filed headshots in like a C-level agency, just hoping that they'd send me out on like one commercial audition a month. Um, and in the beginning, I booked uh, like a series of T-Mobile commercials. <laughs> and I was part of this Poser Mobile posse. And we'd go like, you know, the, the one that a lot of people saw was we're at a bowling alley and I tackled a guy. And uh, he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, um, pose a mobile, say you out of prepaid minutes, yo. <laughs> and he's like, but I just bought minutes. And I'm like, fees, shorty, fees. Anyways, it's the stupidest commercial on earth. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm a classic sort of worked my way from the absolute bottom of the bottom. I did a lot of, ex I got my SAG card by doing extra work. And um, yeah, that, that was my, that. Uh, the extra work was my first onset experience, seeing how it all works in a tra traditional way, and uh, and um, got a part in a show saying one thing, and then a guest spot, and then a film. I did a lot of children's television. I did um, some Disney pilots, and I did a Disney Channel movie called Wendy Wu, Homecoming Warrior, <laughs> with Brenda Song, and uh, I did a show on Nickelodeon called Just Jordan, and. And then, uh, yeah, and then I did... Uh, uh, then and you did some bigger things. Yeah, I did Twilight, and, and uh, I thought... There's this one movie I thought it was over. I was going around town being like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up soon. <laughs> I did this movie called Crossing Over that uh, was produced by the Weinsteins. And it was Wayne Kramer, who I think is an amazing director. He did the movie The Cooler. Yeah. Yeah, that Alec Baldwin got nominated for. But, um, yeah, it was... Sean Penn, Harrison Ford, Ashley Judd, Ray Liotta, Alice Eve, Jim Sturgis, Josh Gad. Like, insane lineup. And I was the lead of my storyline. I thought that was it. But then the, the Weinsteins shelved it for like a few years. And I was like, oh. Then I went and did Twilight. <laughs> so when you did Twilight, uh, I, I love this because, um, you know, there are a lot of things that are difficult about being an Asian in Hollywood, an Asian actor in Hollywood. But one thing is that the... Uh, I think the the age, uh, the elasticity of the yeah. age that you're allowed to play is yeah. is uh, larger due to some of our, uh, thankfully, our, our natural characteristics where people can't tell how old you are. So you're, you go and you do the Twilight saga, right? And yeah. it's that three or four movies? Yeah. Uh, after the first movie, I'm like in one scene a movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But by the end, are you supposed to still be in high school? I mean, I guess they're vampires, so they're... Yeah, but I played ageless. a human, so oh, okay. like I didn't so get I've to do all that cool Twilight shit. Movies. But... Um, but uh, yeah, I think we were out of high school. Okay, okay. I didn't um, know if you were if you were playing a high schooler and, and you know. But uh, during the first movie, I think I was twenty seven playing a high schooler. There you go. Nice. <laughs> nice. As someone who cast a high school movie, you know, I was yeah. quite I was quite uh, sensitive to, you know, some of the movies out there where someone's supposed to be in high school and, and you're like that person's literally thirty five yeah, years old. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so uh, you know, the the angle I want to come at it from is as directors it's often really hard to learn from other directors because mm -hmm. you only really work on your own set 
Yeah. And so whatever your method that you develop is, it works best for you, but you don't really get a sampling of, uh, you know, how other directors talk to actors, how other directors coordinate with their departments. As an actor, uh, you got to work with mm. a whole variety of working styles of, of um, how people talk to you, how they deal with their departments. So can you talk a little bit about how just uh, that was a, a good way of sort of uh, learning what you liked and, and mm -hmm. how, to, how to form your own directing style? That was like my film school. You know, I got to be on set uh, at a high level um, and, and watch all these directors do their thing. You know, I've probably worked with 50 different directors, you know, if you include like television like each episode's like a different director and um and yeah i learned tons i learned that if you when you lose an actor's trust you're screwed because they're just they check out um i learned that what are some ways that you think a, a director can lose an actor's trust there's many ways but uh but right off the top of my head you don't respect them as an artist. You just command that they do stuff. Um, it's uncollaborative. Um, you don't know what you're doing. Like, that's a big thing. If I can sense that a director is not proficient, I'm like, peace. I'm going to protect myself from looking stupid and, and do what, what I think is going to be better, um, which you don't want. Um, also... The big thing is directors who don't know how to talk to actors. They they give you direction, contradicting direction. They don't know how to control their set so that like they're only com the actors are only communing with, communicating with the director, not like the if the AD or somebody else is giving them acting notes, that's bad, you know, or the DP is blocking them, that's bad. You you want everything to funnel through the director, um, and then yeah. The big thing is not being able to communicate your thoughts clearly to actors is 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 very bad. Um, it's literally your job to communicate it's literally your thoughts job, yeah. to actors, not only actors, but to your producer, to the editor, mm -hmm. to departments. Yeah, because that's it's in your head and it's your job to be able to explain what you see. Um, but for actors, giving them general notes like be happy, be sad, like that would drive an actor insane. What you want to do is usually give them something that is actable. So give them like, something to play. Yeah. yeah, some sort of action, like line or verbiage. Uh, so if you want somebody to yell at somebody in a certain type of way, you could tell them, I want you to destroy him with your words. That's very clear mm -hmm. and specific. I want you to um, love him, you know, with, while, while, as you whisper. Like your your dialogue, you yeah. Know? It, then or something that just happened that they can play, like yeah, a moment before, yeah, right, right. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can lose your actors, and mm -hmm. once you do, once you've once you've broken the plate, it's hard to put it back together, man. Okay, put the toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I imagine that you had found uh, some directors that that you responded to better than others. And then you mm -hmm. get to go see the finished product and, and sort of recount, you know, how that director, what they were saying to you and then take that to your own film. So, so what interested you, uh, you know, from being in front of the camera, what was your inspiration to say, Hey, you know, I want to be behind it and I want to, I want to tell the stories, not just be in them. Well, I've always sort of been like a camera geek. I always loved the shooting. You know, I, in high school I, ha I had like a mini DV 
Um, and then, you know, in college, I had, like, remember uh, the Canon XL1, XL2s? Oh, yeah. And then, it, and then it became, like, the HVX 200s. Yeah. And with the, like, the, remember, the, like, the lead, leadest, uh, the, like, the, the adapter? Depth of field For sure. Adapters. The web series I did, the West Side, we shot on. It wasn't even the leadest. It was, like, a guy in Brooklyn made one out of his, like, basement. And I went and bought it, and it was, like, the, the knockoff leaders. Yeah. Uh, but that was the DVX 100 era where the first time a camera shot 24 frames a second was yeah. the first time you could make something that actually looked like a movie, like you could just suspend disbelief to. And yeah. that was really the whole, I think, the beginning of sort of the the revolution that, that kind of hit a whole other level with the DSLRs and the still yeah. cameras and the large sensors. Absolutely. Yeah, so I was always uh, interested in that stuff, the technical aspect. And, you know, I learned how to use Final Cut and... Um, you know, and I learned how to use, you know, Premiere and all that stuff. And I would just, I would make films on my own. They're very experimental. Um, and I have like a, a CD case full of burned DVDs of my short films that no one will ever see. But, but that's kind of like film school. When you go do stuff that there's not a pressure at the end of the day, like this has to be screened or a large audience is going to see it you can sort of fail privately and you can yeah. fail forward and you can say, wow, that really wasn't uh, what I intended it to be or what didn't yeah. work about that and learn that way. That's uh, what's funny is, great. is a lot of people think when you have the first film that is of any sort of critical exposure, they think you just showed out of nowhere, showed up out of nowhere. And it's so far from the case, you know. Um, before my film Gook, I did another feature called Man Up and... It was a it was a another micro budget, but I, a third you, you, of the budget uh, was my money. It. Huh? You di- you directed it. Yeah, I directed yeah. it and acted in it. But a third of the budget was my own money, and it was the best film school I ever did because it everything mattered because it was my money, um, and it was I learned a lot. I learned what not to do, what to do, and that was the thing. Prior to that, I thought because I'd been on so many sets. And I kind of directed my shorts and stuff that I'm like, oh, no, I could do this. It was so far from the truth. And there's so much sort of experience that I didn't have that I knew very quickly. You know, I was like, wow, I don't know how to talk to a production designer. Like things like as an actor, like you just show up and the set's already built. Um, But the main reason I, I stepped behind the camera is I was just sick of people telling me what to do and not having a real say. Uh, on how the project ends up. Um, in particular, I was on this show. I was on this show, and this guy, this television director that had been around for a very, very long time, uh, was having trouble blocking a scene, and I had an idea. So I spoke up, and I said, hey, well, what if we do... And he was like, excuse me, excuse me, what is it that, that you do here? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, what is it you're paid to do here? And I was like, uh, to act? He's like, exactly. So let the director direct and you worry about acting. And I was like, man, fuck you. Yeah. Um, two Sundance films later. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, no. Th- those kind of things really motivated me because, you know, I just, it's not that I thought I could do it better, but like, I just felt, okay, if I'm running a set, I don't want to run it like him. Yeah. And also just the type of stories and the perspective that I have is just different from him, you know? And I was like, I think I have something to say and I have something to offer the film community that uh, he cannot do. Mm-hmm. So that was a big motivator to, to make my own films. And speaking of perspective, Gook is exactly that 
uh, it's a different perspective on on something you know true events the LA riots that we know but fr- told from the uh, Korean American perspective which is yeah. not one that I had seen on film before I don't think anyone's made a film about it before yeah so I assume that that was part of the inspiration was here's a perspective on something that isn't being told and that's mm-hmm. what you can bring to the table as a as a storyteller uh, what was the the inception of that project and then how did you go about once you had the idea you know turning it into uh, uh, financing and, and casting it and you know yeah. bring it to reality absolutely um so after I made man up I was like I'm never directing again <laughs> it was too hard and you know, I spent so long on the edit and I was lucky enough to be able to sell it to Lakeshore. Um, but then I was like, I, I don't want to put myself through it. Like as an actor, I go to my trailer. I ask for a breakfast burrito. <laughs> I said a PA to go get me some fucking ginger ale. So, suddenly it seemed nicer. Right? Yeah, yeah, I was like, so, but also I was so much more appreciative and and understanding towards production and producers and directors, I just I I re-entered my career as an actor with a whole new perspective. But then, you know, uh, the 25th anniversary of the LA riots was approaching, and I had been wanting to make a, a film of, like from a Korean American perspective because during that incident, uh, it was the Korean community that lost huge financially, like all the businesses in, in South Central and, and the hood just got torched. And um, and it was a very much in the media is portrayed in, as a black and white issue mm-hmm. because of Rodney King beating and the four police officers that were acquitted. But then also what people weren't talking about was there was a huge, uh, huge tension between the Korean community and the African-American community. Because the Korean people were coming into their neighborhoods, making all this money and not giving back or not assimilating or becoming a part of the community and taking the money and leaving. Um, so there's a huge animosity. And then also uh, this lady named Soon Ja Du shot this girl, Latasha Harlins, in the back, killed her and got no jail time. So the community was like so mad at, at Koreans. And um, so that when this event happened, the, the rioting all of a sudden, you know, went from just like looting and all this stuff. And then a lot of hatred went towards the Korean community. And I wanted to explore that sort of racial tension. And and I think at that time, I was thinking about where our country was. And that was a 25 years ago. But I was like, man, it's gotten worse. Now their cops are killing people instead of just beating them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the country's very divided. Um, so there's a lot of things I wanted to say. And then I found out there's all these other movies about the LA riots that were trying to be made. I was like, well, if I don't tell my story or my version of it, my perspective uh, being Korean American, that part of it would would not be out there. And then secondly, if they portray it wrong, I have no excuses because I didn't do anything about it. Um, raising financing. So I wrote it. But here's the thing, because we're on no film school. I wrote a film that I knew I could shoot for cheap. I didn't go out and write a $5 million film. I was like, okay, what are, what, how much do I think I could get? And I should write a film that reflects that. Mainly revolves around one location. Ray mainly revolves around one location. Um, you know, and as someone who shot a, my, the first DIY thing I did was a black and white web series. Yes. Black and white is a great shortcut to having something that 
looks great visually, Absolutely. but where you don't have the kind of production design control yeah. over color palettes and what's in the background. There's so many things that are not going to be distracting away from your actors' faces and the emotions if you just yeah. monochrome it. Exactly. I mean, you see it in Francis Ha, you know, um, and, you know, one of my big inspirations for Gook was Lahane. That was black and white, but I, I was like, okay, if I just make the frame have a lot of texture, have things be distressed and production, I think I can get away with doing 1992. I also want to talk about your development of your own sensibilities, because as a storyteller, as a writer-director, your sensibilities essentially is your tone, it is your perspective on the world. It's, it's really just, that's what filmmaking is. Yeah. And I think a lot of, uh, of first-time features become, you know, someone's first and last feature mm, because yeah. something didn't work or didn't meet your expectations and then you know people go and they do something else because as you said it, it's too yeah. hard you know yeah. and you were able to fall back as an actor and still be working in film but i haven't i haven't seen man up but i'm yeah, betting too. i'm betting <laughs> but i'm betting that the sensibilities are quite different and i think yeah. would you have arrived at your voice in gook without having had that first experience? a thousand percent i needed to do that film right and I'm to be honest, I'm I'm proud of it, you, you know, be. because it's so out there and weird. And I got to do I was untethered. There wasn't anyone telling me how I had to do it. Right. And that freedom did build my sensibilities about what mattered to me, and and within within film. Yeah, and yeah. being proud of something as a filmmaker doesn't mean that's the greatest work I'm ever going to do and yeah. I stand by all the choices and the way that it turned out. It means yeah. that you're proud of the experience and you know what you learned and that yeah. it makes your next film Yeah. Better. And I, when I watch it, I have fond memories, you know? But uh, is it like a masterpiece? Hell no. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was so in integral that I did that and it w it's, you know, a lot of people ask me all the time is like, oh, how do I get into film? And I'm like, just do it. Mm -hmm. just go do it go make a film like like practice and and it's the it's the sort of um repetition of of you know planning executing you know delivering and then re and then evaluating and then doing that over and over and, and over that last step is so important because until you you see it with an audience until you have the experience of being a viewer of your work i think you don't you, you can't sort of uh uh start anew on your next project without yeah. having had that experience of going through editing yeah. and looking at your choices and then seeing what you can do in the edit room and seeing it with an audience. Yeah. So having made a movie and then deciding on what you wanted your next movie to, to, do, to be, you know, how did you sort of re-develop uh, re yourself? Yeah. Okay, I think for me personally, uh, telling stories that have a deeper meaning is important. Like, because I, I have to ask myself, because doing a movie is such a commitment and when you're in the eleventh hour and everything's going wrong and and you hate everybody, if I don't have a why or a purpose to why I'm making that film, I cannot get through. If it was just mere for entertainment, I would. I don't think I'd last. But when I have a purpose and a reason for why I'm making it, I lean on that in the toughest of times, and I go, okay, this isn't just for me; it's for my community, or it's to to expose this this subculture of people, you know, and so film for me is pretty introspective. Um, and as far as sensibility, I get influenced by th just things that turn me on, you know, and I don't know where it'll come from. But I mean, one of my favorite movies is Dumb and Dumber. 
It doesn't have to be the inspiration. Doesn't have to be this obscure, you know, you know, Tarkovsky film that that you have to torture yourself and watch for. If that's what you like and you like that poetry through a visual medium, then by all means, let that inspire. But me, in my sensibility, is very eclectic. I love Dumb and Dumber, but I also do love, you know, uh, like a lot of art films, like films that go to Cannes. You know, like recently I saw Capernaum, awesome. You know. Border, awesome. But then I also love commercial stuff. You know,、um, leaning into what turns you on is probably the the best way to go. Yeah, I think I think it's good if you can't put your finger. Yeah, on I it, mean, you did a basketball you know? a basketball movie, and you're passionate about it. And <laughs> for and, sure, yeah. I, you know, I think similarly,、um, I felt like I had something to say, and I、mm-hmm. think that the key point with that feeling is if you're not happy with the way it turns out, if you fail to get it made. If things go wrong, but you felt like you had something to say, you're still gonna be proud that you pursued it. Yeah. And if you don't have that core objective and that core sense of purpose, then when your wildest dreams about you know getting the financing or getting this distribution deal or getting that actor or you know winning this award, if those things don't happen, it can feel empty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't care about anything as long as I like the movie. Like、mm-hmm. when I watch the movie. You know, I did a screening yesterday from for some people、uh, from Miss Purple, and I watched like the first fifteen minutes, and I was like, "Yeah, I love this movie. I I really love this movie." And it doesn't matter how well it does in the box office or or you know what happens to it. I I, I am so happy. It's also the sense of accomplishment. Is I got、oh, on、yeah. the other side of you, it. You you got the the ball over the hill, and <laughs> usually it doesn't it doesn't get over the hill. Exactly. So with, so with Gook,、uh, you did a crowdfunding、yes. campaign. I mean, this was this was a DIY、yes. uh, poster child movie. I mean, you guys you shot in in、um, how many days? Twenty twenty, twenty and then two、uh, two like unofficial days. Right, but before were, or after?、Uh, before. Yeah. So it's technically like closer to twenty two. So let's talk about that because I, I love the the techniques. What happens is once you Once the apparatus is booted up, you know. Once you're going to be on set and and、uh, you're going to be spending money by the second,、mm-hmm. you know. There's this mad dash to get everything in the can, and then you go to the edit room. And you take a breath and you go, "Wow, I hope we got it."、Yeah. So any way that there's,、uh, you know, a splinter crew,、mm-hmm. uh, a day zero, like all these techniques <laughs> to sort of get some footage, get some material for the movie that doesn't require. The entire crew that doesn't require the grip truck or what, all the the Jenny the apparatus,、yes. um, those are always a good thing to try to think about. Yes, absolutely. You know, if it's just your main character and your DP and their walking shots or whatever it is, you、yeah. know, those unofficial days can can make the difference. Between, absolutely. Yeah.、Um, for me, it's it's the unofficial days, and then it's also rehearsal. For a DIY film, you don't have the time to be like figuring stuff out on set. So the more I have had the conversations with the actors, I know what their expectations are. They kind of know what I'm looking for. If I can work that stuff out before I'm wasting burning money, I think it's it's so helpful, you know. And and with Gook, I did rehearse with that little girl for about a month. Especially because with a little girl, you're going to have the child labor restrictions.、Dude. You're going to have so、yeah. few hours on set. And I、yeah. say that as somebody who made a movie entirely starring a kid that、yeah. had child labor, <laughs> so I had fewer hours on set every single day. So let's talk about rehearsal because I think. 
you know, DIY can be a disadvantage in terms of the resources, in terms of the budget, but it can also be an advantage because if you're making a movie with name actors and those actors are going to hit the ground straight from their other production that they mm -hmm. just came from, right? And they're going to do a wardrobe fitting and, you know, then you're going to be shooting. Mm -hmm. You might not have time to rehearse, yeah. right? Or there isn't money to rehearse because yeah. you have to pay these actors for the additional time. Whereas if you're making an a, a movie with less experienced actors, if it's DIY, if they live in the town that you're in, you may have an advantage when it comes to being able to actually rehearse, which sometimes people just can't do at all. Yeah. So, so how much rehearsal did you did did you do, and you know what was your approach there? Yeah, for Gook I did four four weeks, about a month, and then for Miss Purple I did six weeks. Wow. Um, and not every day, but a few times a week, and we go through the scenes, we talk about them, we get them on the their the feet, and in both films I used a lot of non actors. So what I do is I'd be like, don't worry about the, the words. Don't worry about like, that's just a blueprint. These are things that need to be, these things need to happen in the scene. Let's just do it in your own words. And I make them very comfortable. Let them own the part. Let them feel like they have a lot of command over the scene. And then I just slowly shape the scenes and be like, well, what if you did this? But I also, I, I do try to give the actors power and ownership of it um, because ultimately they're the ones that are going to be playing the parts. Um, and, you know, uh, like some experienced actors don't like over-rehearsing for film. For sure. Because they feel like it takes away the magic. I disagree um, because it's not a – it's a team sport. So you have to practice. And sometimes the rehearsal isn't about – the actor that's saying, I don't want to rehearse. Exactly. Sometimes it's about the person opposite them. Exactly. And every actor is different. Yeah. And some people very, just, they just don't want to. Did you go, so I assume by, by saying you're not focusing on the words, you're, you're focusing more on the emotion of no, the scene? No, more than, or, or just, the... just the intentions. Like what yeah. happens in the scene and how do we get there? Um, I don't, if it's rehearsed, that's why I like a long rehearsal process because we'll get there, but it doesn't need to be perfect from day one. So allowing the actors to just feel their way through the scenes instead of being like, oh, no, you missed that word or no, no, you need to say this here. I kind of wanted to organically start to take shape and for them to organically get comfortable. And I'll do exercises like if it's a scene with a lot of conflict, I'll have them maybe like grab each other's arms and kind of like, you know, push back and forth while they're saying the lines or, you know, just to get it in their body. And, you know, if you watch my last two films the performances are pretty natural it's because sure. of it's because of that rehearsal and and they feel like by the time we show up on set they're very comfortable so i'm 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 curious about uh your approach to rehearsal because on amateur we were supposed to have and this wasn't with all the actors but just during prep we were tr i was trying to set aside two days yeah. for rehearsal and unfortunately we had a, a big schedule issue so I, I got one day and then after that day i found out that i wasn't going to get the second day oh because it had to be a company day off and we were going to start shooting a week yeah. early uh so <laughs> i'm curious um how did you structure the rehearsal like did you just do a whole read through then you wanted to focus on key moments or like just having that much time to go in like how did you choose which scenes to focus on and, and how so to if we do it? a read through the read through is more for me i'm seeing how the, the film flows and if there's any problem areas or transitionally, you know, like one scene, another, it doesn't make sense. Or, um, so I don't typically do read throughs with the actors. I do a read through with like other people. Um, but when I 
when I get the actors in the room, um, I don't, I do it like scene work. Like if you were in an acting class. So we'll go scene by scene by scene by scene. And then I ask a lot of questions. I'll be like, are they like off book? Are you, are you up on your feet and you're, you're blocking yeah, it? Yeah, well, a lot of times if, if they're not experienced and I'll, I'll have them don't look at the script. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, let's just feel our way through this. And I'll say, okay, this scene, you, you're trying to leave the house and your sister doesn't want you to leave because she knows once you leave, you may never come back. That's the scene, right? Mm-hmm. And I go, okay, let's jump in the deep end. Try to try to leave, and you're going to try to stop him. And they're going to go through the motions of like, you know, don't you leave. You know, you're so selfish. And he goes, get out. I don't want, I don't, uh, I don't want you in my life. So what happens is the bad version of the scene is already out of the way. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the, the what first the, thing that occurs to yeah. anybody, the most obvious choice. Exactly. Right. And then it's like, okay, well, and I'll start to shape it. I'll be like, um, well, instead of saying that, what if, what if you just let out a grunt? You know, and I start trying to get it in their body. Like, instead of being like, I hate you, just let out a, you know, like, and they'll start to do that. And it's funny because they start to find their way to where it should be. Um, but I try not to be like, that's wrong. Because mm-hmm. there's no right or wrong. I mean, there is a stronger and a weaker version, but but, um, and it's about letting them explore. Um, because I think the rigidity of of scene work with like words, it's not Shakespeare. I'm not Shakespeare for sure. My words don't mean that much to me. It's more about what is the relationship between these two people, and what is it that they want from each other, and what is it that they're not getting. Right. And, and, and it also, that's a strength of being a writer-director mm-hmm. is that if you're a director on set and you don't understand someone's intention or if an actor wants to change a line or if the line isn't working, you might have to go back to the writer and say, you know, are we still getting the intent of this if we make this change? Yeah. But if you're the writer-director, you wrote it, you know the intent yourself. Yeah. And so you can you can almost disrespect your own writing more yeah. because it's it's you yourself doing it. Yeah. It's, not, it's not one person disrespecting another person's craft. Yeah. It's like, oh, this isn't working and I need yeah. to make a change. So during rehearsal, if you're seeing something from an actor, do you then have you, have you gone back and, and rewritten scenes and changed it for their own strengths and a as thousand performer? percent exactly? Uh, Miss Purple was the original character was was much different, um, and I tailored it to each actor what their strengths were. Um, the biggest thing about this type of filmmaking, though, is it's not like a studio film where. You do this and this and this and this scene and, and it's going to go just like this and, and you're going to have this, you're going to have all these toys and techno cranes and you got to plan meticulously for, for DIY filmmaking. I think it's so important to figure out what the magic is and then try to ride that lightning, right? So, which means in turn, you must be able to be fluid and adapt and the film might change and it might be something that maybe you didn't intend, but I think that's what's exciting about indie filmmaking because I think we all consider ourselves like Kubrick or whatever it is and think we're masterminds and geniuses, but I am the first to admit that I don't know shit and that I am learning just like the actors on set and I'm searching and trying to discover stuff as we go and it's what keeps the project feel alive and, and spontaneous and, and uh, you know, 
and keeps everybody on their toes and also like up for trying stuff that can blow your mind. Because I think true filmmaking, uh, when it works, when it fires on all cylinders, is is uh, synergy. It's not the sum of the parts. It's greater than the parts. And I think if as a director, if you're so set and you kind of know exactly what it's going to be, I don't see what the fun of that is. And I think that's what that's that's kind of the number one thing that I think uh, makes sticking to the plan difficult, right? Because if if first of all, you never have enough time to get all the shots that are on your shot list anyway, so it's it's gonna have to go out the window, yeah. you know, the first thing that goes wrong on the day. But I just think as a matter of process, it's really hard um, for the film crew to understand when changes are constantly being made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's because somebody doesn't know what they're doing, yeah, or if it's because the default of any production is gonna be the middle of the road, obvious, this scene is dead, and you know doesn't have the magic that you're talking about. So that's where I think the the communication with the crew comes in because we're not coming in as Kubrick. People don't know, oh, this is David Fincher. He just does a hundred takes. Yeah, so we're gonna be okay with it, yeah. right? It's like, you don't have a methodology that has been proven. And so you need to communicate with people because it's like, otherwise they're just like, this is a disaster, right? And there's a way to make a movie where everyone stuck to the plan and you executed the shot list perfectly and the crew made their day and you made lunch on time and you ended up with a terrible movie. Exactly, it happens all the time. So how did you come in and and set the expectation and and communicate with people so that they knew that the changes you're making are, are, you know, things that are going in the monitor and the camera and you know that if if everyone had a comtech and everyone was by the monitor they'd probably understand what you're doing yeah but most people on a set aren't they yeah. just they're just you know they're they're pulling focus they're over on the in the truck you know yeah. they, they don't know what it is you're doing so how do you how do you sort of manage the chaos of of making changes in order to capture the magic so i think that Part of it is is there's a needs to be some some level of trust, but the big thing is I com- I try to communicate as clearly as possible their expecta- the expectations. So before we shoot, I I tell them this is my style, this is kind of what I do, and if I change my mind and do something like I will do things to protect you too though. So for example, if I shoot one way, I will do my absolute hardest that I'm not gonna forget a shot that we have to turn the whole world around because. Then the grips are going to be mad. All that that stuff. So I have, I know I have consideration for the crew, and I know what I'm asking for when I ask for it. So like, if I'm asking them to turn around the world, I know what I'm asking for, and I know it's not kosher. So I'll be very apologetic, and I go, I know I messed up. I need to go get that. But the biggest thing is when I do my hires, I want people who are better than me. <laughs> Not where I have all the answers and I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. Because I've had directors talk to me that way and said, do you, do you have, uh, did you go to film school and have a, a, take a class on visual aesthetics? Like people have said this kind of bullshit to me. I'm like, no. <laughs> the reason I would think that I hire certain actors is because they do something that I cannot. Uh, a production designer, they have knowledge and expertise that I do not. So in those moments, I'm asking them, I'm like, what do you think? But ultimately, as a director, I have to have the confidence to make a decision. That's the biggest thing is, is um, you have to make decisions, even if they're wrong. And you have to make them fast and you have to, you have to live with them. It's when you kind of dilly-dally and 
and are indecisive when shit gets fucked up. <laughs> so thankfully, shit did not get fucked up. Or it got fucked up, but the, but, but the film turned out well. So Gook uh, premieres at Sundance. Mm -hmm. In the next section, um, it goes on to win festival awards. Mm -hmm. It, uh, you know, it's, you sort of live like the Sundance dream in the sense you're, you're, mm. well, it was your second feature, but the, you know, yeah. the movie gets into Sundance. Um, it opens doors for mm. you as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I'm curious because in this modern era, it seems like people who make their, their Sundance breakout, a lot of them go do a hundred million dollar Marvel movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And you went the other direction. Yeah. So, so take me through the, uh, I mean, two Sundance films in three years. Yeah. Right. So, how did you decide this is the film I want to do next, and what did people tell you about doing that yeah. film next? Yeah. Well, um, I love this question because no one, no one asks these sort of much more introspective questions like this, but. As a director who made a first feature, it's not, it doesn't take a lot for me to think about. <laughs> well, wait a second. How did you decide what to do as your yeah. second feature? Yeah. You know, um, I'm in that mentality. <laughs> going through the traditional route, there's a lot of hands on you saying like, even though what you made before got you there, for some reason, they still don't trust you. And for me, I'm not making films to make to be rich or famous. I'm making films because I have a need for my soul to tell these stories and I have too many stories to tell and not enough time so after I did Gook I did get offered some stuff studio stuff and times like a hundred budget you know like that I didn't have before but I took a look at why again why and I knew if I had taken one of those jobs it wouldn't be my film and what I realized that is if I make five micro-budget films, at least those five films are mine and entirely my voice. And they can never take that away from me. So if I go after those five films, I go and do some Marvel film. If it doesn't turn out the way I want, they know, they could tell. Like, oh, he didn't really get to do what he wanted. And secondly, like, I want people to know me through my body of work rather than the brand IP equity, like the brand, you know, or, or the IP that it's attached to. Um, with that said, after Gook, I got a bunch of offers. Uh, and then um, I started writing something. I, I, I was, I actually, I, this is good to, I think this is good to mention is I got hired to do a book adaptation to write and, and for me to direct. Within a few weeks, I'd done a lot of work. And we weren't seeing eye to eye. And it was just the bureaucracy and the red tape of the traditional ride. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not ready to, to sell out like this. So I, I got out of it. I quit. And then I was like, shit, well, what, what now? Um, and then uh, this film I'm about to make, I started writing this. And, and Macro had agreed to do it. And then I, w I was, felt like I was ready to shoot it, but I felt like they weren't ready. So I was like, okay, I can't. I can't let this much time go by without me practicing, like we're saying, mm -hmm. like the drills. So, okay, I'm going to write another film that's very personal to me that I've always wanted to make. And everybody told me not to do it. They're like, well, you made gook and you're going to spend all your cachet on a, on a feature that's like even less money. Why would you do that? Right. You've got to do something that's, that's uh, 10 times larger. You've got to climb the ladder. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I was like, 
they, everyone thought it was a mistake. Yeah. You know, and my agent was supportive, but like, mm, I don't know, man. I don't know if this is yeah. the right move. And I explained to him, I said, listen, if I don't keep directing, I'm not going to get better. And if I'm scared that this second movie is not good and it's going to ruin my career, I don't belong here anyways. I have to be willing to go to bat and risk it all every single time. That's the only way I'm going to become the director that I want to be. Because I have so many friends that made their first feature and it was a hit or whatever. And they don't make a feature for like six, seven years. Yeah. How can you possibly be good? That's the that's the that's the that's the tough part. I mean, you know, uh, so Macro, the production company, you're making a movie with them. It's great. It's Charles D. King. It's multicultural, like best movies yeah. out there. But with the production company, you know, they have their own considerations yes. and their financing, and it's, you know, that's part of the reason why it took me so long yeah. to to make Amateur. So essentially, you had this this movie you that you are going to make that you wanted to make, and then you just took a left turn and went and uh, you know essentially got something in the can using the, some of the same muscles that you mm -hmm. had built up uh, on Gook. So going from Gook to Miss Purple, you just said it was a smaller budget. I, I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> did you not? You did crowdfunding for Gook. Gook. You did not for Miss no, Purple. No, I did crowdfunding for Miss Purple. Oh, you too. did Miss Purple. Yeah. Okay. But it was for the way I, I've structured the crowdfunding is for post-production. Gotcha. So like paying for you know, color and sound yeah. and all that stuff. So right. we basically, I put, I get the money just to shoot it and then I worry about it as I go. So I'll shoot it and then I'll try to, f I'm like, I'll find a way to get the rest. Uh, it's not a safe approach and there's no production company that would ever, uh, you know, operate that way. Well, if you're shooting, if you're shooting without permits, you know, if you're shooting without things that, you can't blame a company for for, for saying yeah. saying no to that because yeah. you know they could be the ones that are liable and absolutely uh, you know when I did the West Side our web series we shot in New York with no permits no budget you know we 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 fed the actors with pizza that was that was the entire budget basically and you can do that when it's your own yes. thing yes. I don't recommend everyone do it I think it's a great way to sort of you know get a start and then selectively do the non permit yeah. shooting because you could. Of course, be liable if yes. something does happen to God forbid to an actor to to whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, with you know, and, and that's always like the no permit stuff. That's that's when you're on the street. That's when you're yeah. in public. But of course, you can still be shooting in regular locations. Yeah. Um, so so, how did you just jump right in to Miss Purple? Uh, what was the first? You know, once once you've been writing the script, you know, who was your first call? Like like, how did you make it a reality? So, what happened was. Okay, so this is what happened is I wrote a I wrote a vomit draft. I got another and because I had to work so quickly, I got another writer that I trust. Uh, his name is Christopher Din, and I was like, "Hey, I can't work in doing these rewrites fast enough by myself, so you have to help me like restructure and all that stuff." So he came in. We spent about you know, uh 2 months writing, and I got the script to somewhere decent. And then the first call I made was my producer. And I said, listen, I want to make this film. And he's like, when? I'm like, in like two months. And he's like, what? <laughs> no. And I'm like, no, we're going to do this. I have a window. I was also on a, a show for ABC. So I had a As window. An actor. Yeah. And I didn't know if it got picked up, I wouldn't be able to direct for another year. It was so, a pilot or? No, it was a show. It was, it was a show. Like, okay. Yeah. I was in New York shooting that. And I was like, I'm going to come back. I'm going to have this window. We have to shoot it within there. That's motivating. Yeah. Because I didn't know. And I... But I always said arbitrary deadlines for myself 
because if I don't, I'll I'll just kind of take forever to do anything. And that, then what that's happened? What ha- I, I'll say from experience that's what happens because going into uh, you know amateur, I, I left social media, but mm-hmm. it, that was a Kickstarter campaign that I'd run years earlier. And yeah, I was disappointed it taking so long. I had backers who were disappointed who were taking so long. So a friend was googling Ryan Koo, and you know how Google does suggestions, yeah. uh, you know, Ryan Koo, IMDb, Ryan Koo, Twitter, whatever. The one right after that was what happened to Ryan Koo? Oh. Like that, that had been Googled enough because oh. that's how long it can take, you know, yes. to get this movie to reality and to yes. get into prep and the cast and financing. Yeah. So so you were essentially avoiding what happened to Justin Chan, you know, by just going and- Just going, going just and going and, and the figuring next it out thing. as I go. I mean, it's not the most responsible way, <laughs> but- uh, you know, and and basically what we did was, I was up for this uh, Independent Spirit Award. It was like a somebody to watch award, but yeah. there was a twenty thousand dollar grant attached to it. So if you win it, you get twenty grand. I was in New York. My show wouldn't let me go to the. To the they didn't let you go to the Spirit Awards. I went to the actual Spirit Awards, but there was a luncheon that they oh, announced gotcha. my award at, and they wouldn't let me go to that. So I couldn't go, and so I was like, "Hey, you need to go in place of me." Uh, to my, pro- I told my producer that. And I said, hey, listen, let's make a deal. You're going to go get this award. If Did you we... know you had won? No. Or... Okay. I said, if we get this award, we're making this movie. Nice. Because we're going to be 20 grand in, right? Uh, and he's like, man, fuck you. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> and he, because he knows he knows how much work this is going to take and how, how crazy little, it's going to be. Yeah. And it's going to like take years off of our lives. And then the day of the Spirit Awards came and I'm on set. And he's on the way, and I'm kind of nervous because I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I was like, you know what? Fuck this. And I call him. I said, hey, I don't give a shit. We're going to make this movie whether we get this grant or not. Yeah, that's an external thing. You can get yeah. it. You can not. It's great to be nominated. Yeah. It was great to be nominated, but I was like, we're going to make this movie no matter what. This isn't about that. This is about this. This is mm-hmm. about us. Like, And he's like, okay, I'm down. And But then we got it. So you had the money. So we had the initial seed money, 20, 20 grand. It's hard to shoot a. You cannot shoot a feature for twenty grand. It's hard to shoot a short for twenty yeah, grand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so assuming then, that you're going to do it, yeah, the right way. So then you know it's always like the kind of friends and family like increments of like three, six, nine thousand. You have points, and you know you have like an investor agreement and all that shit, and we just scraped it together. And both films, Gook and Miss Purple, we didn't have enough by the time we shot. We just right. started shooting. You start shooting, yeah. And then and then we would have footage. And then anyone who was on the fence, we would show him the dailies and have some mini seats cut together. Go, oh, wow, this looks great. Yeah, give us money. It looks like a much higher budget. The acting yeah, is great, so exactly. on and so forth. That's a great way of doing it. Um, but basically, that was a progression. And then my show didn't get picked up. And I was like, well, shit. You, yeah, you had the time. You're glad you're, glad you're doing it. Yeah, I'm glad I'm doing it. And I'm, I was so glad I was on a set doing something else when I found out the show didn't get picked up. Because I'm like... Cool, whatever. I don't yeah. really care that I didn't get picked up because I'm making my own movie. Right. Also, you know? also winning an award and not being able to be there to win the award, also life goals. You know, that, that's also, <laughs> I well, I can't make be it there, because though. I'm shooting this other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, uh, you know, Miss Purple was extremely difficult and it was DIY. And the other thing I want to say is you can be crazy and wild and take swings, but you still need to make sure it's safe. Don't put people's lives in danger. Don't. It's not funny. It's not cute. I'm always thinking ahead. So even if we're doing stunts or whatever, that I will spend money on a on a stunt coordinator, even though we don't have the money. I'll be like, For no, sure. stuff like that. 
making movies is awesome and great and fun and exciting, but it's not, it shouldn't be at the cost of someone's well-being. Not at all. Yeah. I, I would always, I mean, sometimes you can't do it if it's a stunt, but when we were doing the West Side, I would try to be the one to put myself at risk. Exactly. You know, so if it's, there were some locations in the West Side where, it, you know, this isn't, this is an abandoned house. We don't know who's there. There's, you know, vials and broken glass everywhere. You know, the first person who's going into that house to scout it, it's like, I'm going to go in and yeah. you know, I'm going to be the one to, to to say whether it's safe for other people. And, and you can at least try to, to, you know, take some of that on yourself. But yeah, absolutely. It's it's movies, you know. Yeah, it's you just a movie, man. Yeah, I mean, and it's also the experience, like, people are going to remember it by, that made it too. Um, but yeah, Miss Purple Band, that, that, that's kind of was the process. And then... The edit was really long. Well, let's not get right to the edit. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, a long edit is great. Yeah. And, and a short edit has ruined so many movies that yes. could have been better. And I think it's one of the the most major examples to, uh, most major lessons to learn mm-hmm. is just how much, you know, they say there's the movie you write, the movie you shoot, and the movie you edit. But yeah. it really is like a third version of the film. And you really have to yes. protect your time and, and uh, have a close relationship with the editor or just, you know really be willing to to dive in and explore and to keep honing and changing things. But production, let's not skip that because did you guys shoot it anamorphically? Yeah. So it's 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 a it's a DIY film. It's also extremely visual. It's impressionistic. You were so specific about the rehearsal. Yes. And how that informed the actors. Yeah. So I don't know how much your locations were locked. You know, I, I don't know how mm, much we did, yeah, we, planning yeah. you could do, but um, I know you have a really close relationship with your DP. Yeah. And, you know, how much were you able to sort of uh, do tests or set the look in advance before you... Oh, we did. Tons yeah. of tests. There you go. We went to the, the, the Lens house. He was an independent guy and he has a, his own collection that he rents out. And we went and tested everything. And I brought the actors. We mm. set them with different lights we so you can't, yeah, you, it, you can't do this on a on a big budget thing, you know. Usually, yeah. you might not have the. I mean, maybe the actors are going to come in for a makeup test or a screen yeah. test, but you can't just say, "Hey, will you come over to the you know, yeah. to this guy's apartment that exactly. we're going to test lenses in?" Exactly. And we we put her we put the the actors in certain type of clothing, and that's why the visual it's it's put together is because it was all thought out, and the color palette we. We knew, I mean, the movie's called Miss Purple. So, like, uh, you know, the color purple in Korean culture is the color of mourning when you mourn someone's death. So we wanted the complementary color, which is green. So I wanted um, to set the exposure and everything so that there's a tinge of green in the sunlight. And also there's a milky sort of green in blacks, right? So there's a certain type of testing you have to do. and But that kind of stuff goes a long way. In making a DIY micro budget film feel much more bigger than it is. Um, you know, and I was just very specific about what I wanted her to wear. And I didn't give up. Like, we actually, her clothing was a big thing where it just kept going back and forth. And I just was like, it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. Until it was right. You know, and the production designer, I was very clear about what I wanted. I wanted a lot of t- textures on the walls. I wanted like wallpaper that was kind of falling off and. We couldn't afford the wallpaper, so my production designer printed it out, like on on paper. So and t- these are things that you just made it. Yeah, but it's like, what is the ideal version that you your wish list, and how do you how do you get close to that in a very innovative sort of uh, you know, in a way that that doesn't break the bank, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. 
you know. And, and you're also you're eliminating a lot of surprises. Yes. Because if you already knew what the wallpaper was looked like because you printed it and you'd already done screen tests with the actors yes. and the lenses, then you know things are going to go wrong. But at least you've at least you you've eliminated some of those things that where where the last thing you want is to show up, turn the monitor on. And look at it and say, this is all wrong oh, you because you're not going to have the time yeah. to get it right. Yeah. You, know, you can make a few tweaks here and there, but. Oh, you'd be so screwed if you if that was the case. No, by the time we rolled the first frame, I was confident that uh, maybe I wasn't so confident that I was going to make a great film. But I was confident in the choices that I made that that they they were made. The choices have been made. Um. And, and how do you, you know, on set, one of the things that was surprising to me, because I was coming to amateur completely from a DIY background where I had been my own DP, my own camera operator, my own focus puller. And so I didn't need to, in that situation, really communicate with other people. Yeah. So, so coming into uh, Miss Purple, it was, it was Andy. It was your same DP mm-hmm. from yeah. Gook. Same DP, yeah. So how did you feel like you guys carried that relationship forward? And, and like, was there a different level of trust? Uh, yeah, but there also, <laughs> it goes both ways. There's also, there's a, uh, you might be a little too comfortable. Hmm. So sometimes you take things for granted. And, uh, you know, there's a few days that I probably crossed the line and said stuff that, you know, and I think it hurt his feelings. But then he he wanted to come talk to, he wanted me to talk to him and we, and we talked it out and I didn't know I was, I did. I did. Wasn't considering his feelings enough, and I apologized, and and it, it made us stronger. But um, it's one of the the most important relationships on a movie. At the yes. end of the day, the two people that are you know getting the performances and getting the image in the camera are the director and the DP. And I had a really close relationship with my DP, Greg Wilson. He had shot my short. Yeah. And honestly, I you know amateur would not have happened if we weren't close because so yeah. many things went wrong that the two of you just have to you know, have each other's backs and, and yeah. you know, rely on that relationship to carry the day. Um, but also, you know, it, the movement of the camera yeah. is such an instinctual thing yeah. that it, it feels like such a big part of Miss Purple, right? Absolutely, for Miss Purple it is. Um, it's very intuitive coverage, as I call it. I like to do what's called moving masters. So I don't like a traditional master where it's a wide and you just see everybody small in the frame. To me, it's not as engaging, and the type of films that I make are very immersive and personal. So I want the camera to be in with the actors. So I try to cover the scene while the camera's moving a lot of times, and that requires an intuitive sort of uh, IQ, the camera IQ that Auntie has. Um, yeah, and an emotional uh, being in touch with the characters emotionally, knowing when to move. Yeah. It also requires uh, a different kind of um, production design because yeah. they know that you that you might, you might yeah, yeah you might turn around and yeah. and uh, it's not going to be something where you can reset redress yeah. the set if you turn around because you're gonna you're gonna turn around in the course of the shot. Yeah, but you know with the DP relationship, I spend a lot. It's all about prep, man. I spent so much time with that fucker. You know, like just. Uh, <laughs> Fucking watching movies and and talking about scenes and approaches and then we get to set, we throw it all away. We we dare ourselves to to create on the spot, but we have a plan going in. But uh, I spent so much time with that dude, you know. Um, and I think a lot of times you can't do that if it's a large movie and you're yeah. you're hiring a DP who's who's done some larger films. 
Um, you know, again, you have the schedule availability, someone shows up and, and then you're sort of scrambling. Yeah. And so, so again, it's, it's finding a way to use the, the lack of resources, but also use the, the, the extra advantage in terms of time. Oh, that's a, such a huge advantage. You know, there's so many advantages to doing DIY, you know, micro budget films. There's such a freedom to it too, you know, and as you know, you, you did amateur through Netflix and like on my set, I go, hey guys, I, I rarely go over 12 hours, but if I were to be like, guys, can you just give me an extra 15 minutes? No one's going to say anything. But on a film like that, the AD might be like, hell no, we cannot <laughs> afford it. We can't, we have all these other considerations, whatever. You can't really ask for grace, all that bullshit. On a micro, that is your advantage is the, the moving fast, being nimble and also being able to make your own decisions for yourself. And also having people who are there for the right reasons. No one's on a micro budget because they're trying to get rich or, you know. Yeah, the, the larger the, sh- the ship, the, the slower it is to turn. And yeah. I remember on Amateur once we were, we were filming in a school and it was sunny out and we had this, uh, this outdoor scene scheduled. And I looked out at one point and it was totally sunny, but it was raining. And I, you know, every instinct in my filmmaking body was grab the camera, go yeah. out. The yeah, scene yeah. that you're going to shoot later with him walking up, like it's going to look amazing. Yeah. Have you know, it's the right emotional feeling for this. Get outside and shoot it. Yeah. And you know, ten minutes later, it stopped raining. It was over, and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't mobilize. You yeah. couldn't just grab it and go. And and um, that was definitely a learning experience going from DIY to a, you know, much yeah. much larger project. That's something like that would need to be planned. Right, you would have to get the fucking rain machine, the rain machine. And, and all that bullshit. <laughs> like, which is, I don't know. And then that's why you see, like, I don't know, like a filmmaker like um, Sean Baker or something in the Florida Project. I think sometimes you have to be willing to piss some people off. Yeah, or or Tangerine shooting yeah. it on an iPhone. Yeah. One of the inherent advantages to that is, yeah. you know, the permitting department is not coming down on you because you're shooting on an iPhone. Yeah. They think you're making a home movie. They think yeah. you're filming your friends. But I think like something like the Florida Project he had to deal with a lot more and he just had to risk pissing some people off. Here's the thing though, is that's your job as a director is to get what you know is the best thing for the film. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not your job to make the crew happy. Yes, it's not your job to be the most liked person or friends with everybody. That can be your enemy. Yeah, and I... And I know that for myself, my own instincts are I want to be liked, I want to make people happy, I don't want to make their jobs harder. But at the end of the day, you know, there are times where it's like, okay, if, if they're going to think poorly of me or their production or whatever it is, that's a sacrificial lamb yeah. to the scene and the performance in the film. Absolutely. If if you deliver what you promise, which is to make a good movie, everybody will be fine later. Yeah, they'll forgive you. Yeah, as long as you don't do crazy shit. No, of course. I don't think you <laughs> – neither of us are talking about, you know, being verbally or physically abusive or anything. Yeah. But it's just, you know, film sets are really, really – hard place to be and as long as you respect the fact that everyone there could be making more money doing something else yes. could be living a better life yeah doing something else with with less stress and less travel and and you know a closer relationship with whoever's in their lives i mean this is it's a big sacrifice to work on movies whether you are the director whether you're the production assistant yeah. uh, as long as you're appreciative of that then oh know, yeah and that's the other thing like appreciation will go a long way if the if if you're genuine about it and the crew knows that you're appreciative, most people will 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 pick that up and and give you a little bit of leeway. But if you're like just a tyrant and a dick, yeah, you you better be paying them a lot. Okay, so everyone everyone uh, told you not to do this movie. Yes, 
you get, oh, actually, we were talking about editing. I was going to skip right to Sundance, but uh-huh. you know, getting the movie in the can and and going to Sundance. There's a important phase of production in between those two. Yeah. So did you? Um, how long were you editing, and and how did you? You know, again, that's something that's uh, different for a DIY production. If you're cutting in somebody's apartment versus you know, on a larger movie, you're you're paying rent at a yeah. at an edit edit house. What was your approach to the edit for Miss Purple? So for for all my films, I have an editor on set editing while I shoot. Um, so I can get a sense kind of how the film is t- turning out as I'm shooting or if I need to make adjustments or if something's not working. So they're cutting scenes and you're, and you're watching them after you're, you During rap. lunch, gotcha. after we wrap. Yeah. Uh, once we wrap, I, sp- I spent, well, specifically for Ms. Purple, I spent about two weeks going hard, like 12. Straight to, after wrap. Yeah. You didn't take a, you didn't take a break? Fuck that. No. <laughs> 12 to 15 hours a day. 16 hours a day just going hard at the edit it's everything I all the footage is fresh in my mind I know what I I have or I don't have um, also though I don't watch dailies I watch the the assemblies but I'm not watching dailies during the shoot so that time is also for me to get familiar with the footage like with everything and then I went to Russia my wife is Russian so I went to Russia uh, for a month so I took July off but so you did take a break, but you but you sort of went right into the edit, and then you took a break rather than right. Kind of because I went to Russia, but I was still giving notes. So I would yeah. get maybe a cut every day, and then I'd look at it and I give notes, and we went back and forth like hmm. that. Then I got back. It was you know um, top of August, and I just uh, I started freaking out. I was like, I think I made a shitty movie. <laughs> And this, I think, happens on every. This happens to every movie. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so screwed!" Uh, and I went nuts. I went nuts. I was like, "We need to do like a two week reshoot." My producer's like, "Hell no, we don't have money for that." <laughs> I was like, "No, we." And I just, I just, just went nuts, and I was torturing my editor, and and he was just wanted to kill me, and and um, we just kept at it, kept at it, and then once I was like at the bottom, lowest low. I had tried all these different versions. Then I was like, okay, it's time to screen this shit and find out exactly what the problem is. Mm-hmm. So I would screen it every day. Wow. Every day with like a new person, you know, and just... Were you, and, si- were you sending links to people or you'd sit there no, and watch it with somebody? No, they come to my house. Yeah, because that's different. Yeah. It's, it's different to sit through a movie with people live because that's what the experience of watching a movie is, yeah. you know, as opposed to... Here's a Vimeo link. Yeah. And I'm you know, sitting with Email them. me some notes. You're right. Exactly. You can feel it when you're sitting with yeah. people. And I'm watching it once or twice all the way through a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start to get a sense of like, oh, because I'm watching it so much. And and there's reoccurring notes that will come up. Some notes will be crazy. Some notes will be like taste driven. But then there will be a consistent set of notes that becomes very evident with the over with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, these are things I have to address. And I'll address those. And then it's just that constant readjusting. And then you'll have epiphanies where you're like, oh, I should just cut this entire section, the sequence. Oh, I should move this earlier. And it's really hard to have out. those epiphanies if you're not getting other people's uh, perspectives and opinions. Because otherwise you've just seen the, the same movie and you're yeah. in your own head. And, you, and you you've got to be in the do. room. If you yeah. think you could just hire an editor and just have them do stuff and you just give them notes, good luck. Like, the way to make a film great, I think, is you got to be in there every second with the editor, figuring it out with them. Because you're so invested then and, and you know just as well. You don't want your editor to know the film better than you. That's crazy. 
Um, so we just, you know, we just kept going. And then I was like, you know what? I do need like a day, just a day or two to shoot some stuff, some additional stuff. So I got everybody back together, got the band together and, and I shot a super budget, like basically with no money. We built like sets in my producer's house, like to make it mm -hmm. match some stuff. And, and, um, that's the other thing. If you're doing DIY, do not throw away anything. Do not throw away any props. Do not throw away any furniture that you purchased, any wardrobe. Keep that shit until your film is done, like yeah, it's at we, the festival or whatever it is. We did additional photography on Amateur as well. And, you know, it was like, we need to track down that hoodie. Oh, yeah. we bought it from, you know, TJ Maxx. It was cheap. It's like, okay, but like, yeah. you know, how do, how do I find it now, months yeah. later? Absolutely. You gotta oh, keep man, it. that's a, yeah, you don't want to put yourself in that bind. And then, yeah, and then... um. I got it to a place where I was really happy with it. And that's the mistake I made with Gook is they did offer me an extension for the submission. Submitting to Sundance. And I didn't take it because I was like, oh man, nobody knows who I am yet. I kind of right. have to, I want to get in there because I probably have to start filling slots. And, and then two weeks later, I had a better cut and I was like, oh. Man. Did you go back? Did you I say did I go back? And they were pretty annoyed. Because <laughs> they have to. Yeah, there's a huge volume of stuff for some Yeah, nice dude, think about having 10, million, 10, 10, 000 submissions. Yeah, in your film, they they have to keep track of which which file that everyone needs to see, and so this time I was like, no, no, I'm gonna take every single second, and then I sent it um, on the day that it, like maybe two days before because I wanted to make sure that um, I didn't hit any snags. But uh, that was the editing process. It was very long and painful. Because for Miss Purple, because the actors, these are their first movies and they weren't as, their camera technique wasn't as good and they, they weren't as versed on how to be on a set and operate on a set, I shot a lot. I overshot. Right. Yeah. Because I needed to find the, the moments, the morsels that I felt was going to make a great film, impactful moments. But in return, I had so much footage, so much damn footage. And it was also a curse though. Having that much footage, the movie can be anything. Like there's, I had too many options. So it was a blessing and a curse. But uh, Gook, I didn't really have that luxury because we had a kid. There's such a finite amount of time I could shoot that it wasn't, the edit process wasn't as painful as it was for Miss Purple. Miss Purple was so long. Was the, was the cut ever really, really long or you just had a lot of coverage and a lot of different... Uh... My first cut was like two hours and 30 minutes. Okay. So uh, you, get, you get some good news from Sundance. Mm -hmm. How did you celebrate? I was about to watch... I was at the Arclight about to watch Shoplifters. I was about to walk in and I got the call and I was like, yeah. So I went to the bar, drank another beer before I watched Shoplifters. <laughs> I watched Shoplifters and was so... Because, you know, Coriada was one of the influences for this film, even though people might not see that. They hmm. keep saying Wonka why, but yeah. to be honest, it was more Coriada. I watched... And I think I had a drink after the film. I, I loved watching Shoplifters, so I was like really kind of stoked on that after. And then uh, I called everybody. I called the, the key heads. I called people uh, to share the news. Everybody's really excited. Um, and uh, when I was on the phone with Sundance, they're like, you got in, blah, blah, blah. And I was like so excited. And I was like, well, what, what section I'm, am I in? And they said competition. I was like, What? Right, because uh, you know, for those who don't know, uh, next is is sort of like a usually like a lower budget, but also more radical, more digital, yeah. like younger uh, section, and then competition, U.S. dramatic competition, uh, is you know where you can 
win the grand jury prize and and uh it's it's i mean i, I don't think the festival wants to think of one as a step up from the other but yeah you, but yeah it's just that you, know, you can if you get the call and they say you're in u.s dramatic competition um it's being taken seriously yeah you know and not that they don't take seriously the other films it's just that you're competing basically and i think also for a movie about an asian american experience to not be in a sidebar yeah to be in u.s dramatic competition that was a big thing for me yeah and i was in a great company you know there's two other asian american films min hall's film and also Lulu's film, The Farewell. So uh, I was really proud to be. And then, you know, but the big thing I was the most proud of is that I made it for a tiny budget. I made it for such a micro budget. And to be standing next to those films that, like, I think the next cheapest film was times 10 our budget. That's a huge accomplishment that, that it's not always about how much money you have. It's not always about having the biggest producers making a film for you. Or the biggest actors. It's really, there's, you can make just as good of a film uh, with less money. You just have to be more creative. Yeah. But I, I was really proud of that. And your voice shined through in a way that sometimes that it can, uh, you know, it can get um, watered down mm-hmm. if there are a lot of other cooks yeah. in, the ki- in the kitchen. So Miss Purple, uh, really a great example of what's possible um, for a lot of the things that we extol the virtues of on No Film School. Yeah. And uh, it's out in theaters any day now. September 6th. September 6th in LA, and then September 12th to 13th in New York, and then it'll, it'll slowly expand to major cities. And you might be in prep. You might be working on another movie by the time this this comes out. Yeah. Uh, so no rest for the weary. Or no. I guess you had some time off. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? Too many stories to tell, not enough time. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I'm not trying to be a volume filmmaker, but man, if you have a burning desire to say something, why do you need to wait? That is a great place to leave it. Yeah. Justin, thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for listening to the No Film School podcast. We have new episodes every week. And as always, many, many articles at nofilmschool.com. I'm at Ryan B. Koo on Twitter, although I haven't been on Twitter in about a year. So maybe follow at No Film School instead. Please, as always, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. It really helps us grow this and bring you more interviews. Thanks for listening.